as we settle in, as our kiddos make their way uh, to Center Kids, I want to, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where today uh, we're going to finish up kind of the, the last area or the last uh, specific area of equipping that Paul works through in this letter uh, before closing out the letter in two weeks by looking at, at some final instructions that he's going to give uh, to the church in Thessalonica, but also, again, the word is for us today. Uh, and so this week we'll finish up this specific area of equipping. Next week we'll pause to take one week to look at, um, and we're going to look at the story of Jesus' arrival, specifically uh, this call to joy uh, that we have in, uh, man, th- this Advent season. And so... Um, as you turn there, what I want to do is, again, as we, we do most weeks, I want to just quickly recap kind of where we've been over the last few weeks. And so uh, over the last few weeks, we've seen Paul, he, he's been spending some time working through some areas that he felt uh, needed to be addressed so that as God's people who, who find themselves, and again, the church in Thessalonica is is facing uh, immense persecution because, uh, man, they are following Jesus. And so uh, others don't like that uh, because, man, we call Jesus king. And so they have gone to the authorities and they said, hey, th- this group uh, of Christians, this group of people that claim to follow Christ, they're saying that Jesus, this Christ, is actually greater than Caesar. He is the true king, which they are right in saying that. But, but what we know is, man, uh, for those, uh, specifically Caesar and those that, that rule over these people, man, they do not uh, care uh, for those things. And so they begin to persecute the church. And so Paul, in, in, in knowing that they're facing a variety of pressures and persecution due to their faith in Jesus, he, he encourages them, he seeks to equip them so that they might not only persevere, but they might actually live intentional lives in light of the gospel. Uh, You see, Paul, man, what he understands uh, personally, but also uh, what he understands from what Jesus said, Jesus says, in this world you will have what? Trouble, right? Uh, But he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Paul, in writing to this church that he loves, he knows that they are facing trouble. Paul himself constantly, if you read through the book of Acts, if you know about his life, constantly faces trouble and hardship. And yet, through it all, he is encouraging, hey, don't just make it, don't just hold on and, 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 and make it until you can kind of escape out of here. Actually, no, you're called in light of the gospel to live a life that thrives for the kingdom of God. That lives differently so that even in the face of these things, those that maybe are doing it unto you or those that are watching might question why you love the way you do. Why you have joy. Why you have hope. Why you have faith, right? You see, again, the gospel not only affects who you are, uh, the gospel actually in turn affects what you are to do and actually what you should do. We, we talk about it all the time. Who you are, your being influences your doing, not the other way around. So it's not because I do these things that I'm accepted by God, but because I am accepted by God through the perfect work of the Son, I then go and I live differently. And so in the midst of a world that says live for you, 
as followers of Jesus, we live not for ourselves, but, but for Christ and others. Which means that, that we, and Paul is, has been addressing this over the last few weeks, we live differently when it comes to, uh, man, things regarding morality. So when we talk about ethics, principles for moral living, right? The, the Bible is chock full of them. And Paul is saying, hey, don't just do them because you, you feel like you have to to check a box. He's actually saying, no, uh, man, because of the gospel, it speaks to these things. It actually gives you life and empowerment to live them out. And so as God's people, we are to proclaim better news regarding morality when it comes to things like sex or our love for one another, which what we saw is Paul says, hey, I don't need to write to you about this. Rather, what I'm going to do is I'm going to encourage you to love one another more and more and more as God's people. He says, hey, if you really want to do this, man, first live a quiet life. Be level-headed. You see, the world around us is always saying what? They're saying, well, uh, you know, look over here at this or look over here at that or we need to be frantic about whatever it is. I don't know what the toy of the year is, but I remember growing up, it'd be like, yeah, it's flying off the shelves. No one can get it, right? But we, that, that's every season. There's always something new. I think even more so because of media and, and how quick we can get access to news now. But Paul says, hey, in the midst of that, may we, may we be level-headed. Oh, gosh. <laughs> may we not only be level-headed, <laughs> may we, Paul says... Um, he, he, may we mind our own affairs. He says, hey, if you want to really do this, mind your own business. And then lastly, he says, hey, if you really, if you want to combat those things, work really hard with your hands. Pour out your life and whatever work you have. Be a hard worker because guess what? The ultimate thing that you would ever try to work for that you couldn't accomplish, Jesus has done it for you. So you're freed up to really work. And the reason we get these calls to live differently, I believe, are actually connected to the text we saw last week and what we're going to look at our time today regarding the hope that we have in Christ's return and how that hope impacts our daily living. You see, Paul spends some time in this letter, as we saw last week, addressing what we term as eschatology, right? Like the study of death, judgment, and the end times. And so why would... Like, why does he need to do that? Why does he have to do that? Well, I believe for a couple of reasons. One, this young church, in the face of everything that they've dealt with and are dealing with, they've either been taught or told some things about Christ's return that have caused them to, as I shared last week, wrestle with a couple of questions. One, what happens when you die? Specifically, those that heard that Jesus is returning and have died since then, do they have any hope when Christ returns? Then secondly, what happens at the end of the world, but more specific, and we're going to see it in our time today, when is it going to happen, and how do we prepare for it? So last week we looked at question one, we saw that Paul presents hope to those in the church who were wondering if the dead had missed out on the hope of Christ's return. By stating that both the dead and the living could hold on to hope for death in Christ, and Paul uses the term three times, he says it's nothing but sleep. Now what he means by that is that their physical bodies are just at rest waiting for Christ's return where they will be resurrected and perfected. Their souls are with Christ now. But he also says that it's not only just sleep for the body. He says when Christ returns, both the living and the dead will join him when he returns. And so we looked at the, this idea of the return of Christ or the uh, parousia, which that, that is a term that was used in this culture constantly. 
Honestly, because, man, they were ruled by an emperor. They were ruled by people who came and they wanted to make a lot of themselves. And so what this word means is it it describes a visit, usually an unannounced visit from a person of high rank, especially a king. So Paul says, hey, guess what, man? When Jesus comes back, he's going to come back like an unannounced king. But he's the true king that will rule forevermore. And then we see Paul describes what happens when he returns. He says the dead will rise first. And they will join him, followed by the living being. And we saw this word caught up. A word that defined in some theological circles as the word rapture, right? Where they will then meet Jesus and the dead in Christ in the air. Now, uh, again, if you're a visitor with us, uh, welcome. Uh, But we just preach the Bible, so we're just going to preach whatever, we're going to work through whatever it says, you know. Uh, And so, uh, three more things quickly before we move on. First, last week I shared that the descriptive word rapture is an English term used by some in the church to define the moment when Christ removes believers from the earth, takes them to heaven before a season of tribulation. Now my view, and again, I shared this last week, open-handed, this is an open-handed issue. My view is that not only is this term not in the scriptures, actually, I believe what Paul is arguing, I believe what Jesus argues, I, all, I believe what all of scripture argues, is that this is not a form of escapism, but is a momentous occasion of hope at the consummation of all things when Christ returns and unites himself with his bride, the church. Now, secondly, I want to make uh, uh, just a couple of clarifying notes because, man, my wife is so wonderful. She, last Sunday we got done, she said, hey, I just got a couple of notes. She said it was great, but here's a couple of things I think you need to just clarify really quickly so no one's confused. I said, great. So Haley mentioned that when I described caught up last week, it, it, it sounded really similar to the rapture. And so what I want to do is I want to clarify what I mean when I say caught up so there's not any confusion. So the the typical commonplace word for rapture that that we see so often in some theological camps and circles is uh, is an act of Jesus removing people from earth, specifically believers, removing believers from earth to heaven for a period of time, commonly known as seven-year tribulation, right? But when I read the scriptures, when I see the word caught up, what I mean by that is not the removal of of, of believers to heaven to escape some form of tribulation. When I see the scriptures, I believe that this caught up is an actual reuniting with Christ in the air and then joining him as he returns to the earth immediately without delay. Jesus doesn't, in my view, Jesus doesn't return three times. He doesn't say, hey, I came, I'm going to come back, pull all the believers out, and then seven years later, I'm going to come back a third time. I don't believe that's in the scriptures. What I believe when I see caught up is that when Jesus returns at the the sound from heaven, the trumpet blast, the archangel saying, hey, with a shout, right, Jesus comes, the dead rise with him, and we, the living, if you are alive, uh, man, we join him in the air. And then, as I shared last week, we join him as he comes to make all things new on earth. Because if you read Revelation, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And actually, we, I believe we will dwell in eternity on a new earth, being fruitful and multiplying. And so I wanted to just clarify that. 
But also all of this, Paul says, is to be something that encourages hope in the church as we live in the now and long for the future return of Christ. And I believe that's so key as we look at these texts today. To not get stuck on what happens or even today as we look at when it happens, but rather that we would be encouraged and we would live in the now while never losing the great hope we have for the future. Actually, it would be a cyclical spurring on. As we live in the now, man, we would hope and long for the future, but it actually would just encourage us, man, I'm going to pour my life out now. And then as we long for the future, that future longing and hope of realizing, that would just spur us on even more to live in the now. And then one more thing, as one more note. In all of this, I encourage you, study Okay, open the scriptures, read it, ask questions. If you need book recommendations for a wide variety of the open-handed ways that people look at these texts, I'm more than willing to just lay it out before you and say, hey, here, let's be learners. And so with that before us, let us look now at the second question Paul addresses concerning the end of all things by reading first verses 1 through 3 in chapter 5. It says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Okay, so before we set out to answer the question regarding what happens at the end of the world, specifically when it's going to happen, I want to ask a question. How many of you in the room, you love to be surprised? You like, you love, oh man, more than I thought, right? Because I'm not one, okay? Like, I hate being surprised. It, it makes, and this is why, like, not that I hate the person that surprises me, okay? Uh, but the, the act of it, it makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm caught off guard. And I feel very, very, very unprepared in how I'm supposed to respond, Okay? Like some of you get that, like you get surprised or you, you ever surprise somebody and you're really excited about it and then they don't really respond correctly. They don't meet your level of excitement of the expectation of what's just happened. And then you're frustrated or you're like, well, you don't care about me. I'm never celebrating you again. Like when people surprise you, and, and again, I want to clarify, there's a difference between someone scaring you, which is a lot of fun, uh, but probably malicious, uh, and, and someone surprising you. Is that, man, the person that's doing the surprising, you're ready, right? You're prepared, you've planned it out, you told people what time to get there, where to park their car, right? And everyone gets ready. You have the right level of emotion, anticipation in your own life has been allowed to build. Excitement is ready to burst forth at surprise, right? But you see, there's a problem on the other side. The person getting surprised is not ready. And so they might not respond with the same level of excitement. Some of you might because you're like, oh, I love it. But I think based on the show of hands, more often than not, it's usually the, the response is some level of fear that at times causes them to ruin the moment by running away, passing out, or throwing a punch, right? Like, don't do that to me. I'm not ready for it. And if you don't believe me, like I just add, like test it, like over the holidays, surprise somebody. Don't, not scare, surprise them. 
And when you do, watch their face. Like, it'll probably be some, like, transitional face of, like, terror, then surprise, then relief and excitement. But they're not ready for it. You are. You see, I like to know what I'm walking into. I like to be prepared for what's coming. I want to know when. And the same is true for those to whom Paul is writing to. Like they want to know if Paul can tell them when the end will come and how they might prepare for it to make sure they're ready. They're like, hey, you're talking about how he's going to come. You told us about that. Guess what? Just tell us when. Can you just give us a hint? We need to prepare. And so Paul addresses their question at the beginning of chapter 5. with their. He, he says, I want to begin with your concerns for the times and seasons. That word, that phrasing times and seasons, literally what these people are asking is for the time and date of Christ's return so they can pencil it in on their calendar to which Paul responds. He says, you have no need for anything to be written to you about this. He says, you've already been taught concerning the return of the Lord. You see, for Paul, the solution is not knowing when Christ will come because even Jesus said no one knew or could know the day or time that the end would come. But only all Jesus says and all Paul says here is, hey, it's going to be unexpected. It's going to be unexpected. You see, Christ's focus, and I believe Paul's focus, is, is, is on the unexpected nature of his return. This is what Paul hones in on here in the text when building out his answer, uh, which is that the solution is not when, but how we live in light of this hopeful unknown. You see, Paul's not afraid to, to just sit back and say, hey, no one knows and it's okay to have that tension. And what he does is he uses two metaphors in this text to illustrate how the Lord will come. The first metaphor he uses is it says that he will come like a thief in the night. That's a great metaphor here to describe the unexpected nature of Christ's return. Because guess what? If you think about thieves, like good thieves, are they good? They do a couple of things really well, right? One, they don't tell you when they're coming. Defeats the purpose. But secondly, they come under the cover of night. Now, some of you are already like, no, like today's age, like everyone's out of the house during the day. So I'm not like, we're just saying, this is what we see. Like watch Home Alone. They come at night. Uh, they're there, uh, right? And so they come under the cover of night. That's what God, Paul says. He says, man, when Jesus returns, it'll be like a thief in the night. But the second metaphor he uses is while people proclaim... I believe that these people he's talking about are those that don't know Jesus, that they're just living their own lives for their own selves. He says, while they proclaim peace and security, he says, destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Now, I'm not a woman, so I can't speak to this, but I do have four children, and and I know, or I've seen the nature of labor pains, right? And what Paul says is that for many, He says, for many, they spend their whole lives living for earthly peace and safety, believing that they are secure. He says, but in the moment when Christ returns, destruction, as Paul writes, will come upon them without warning like labor pains. He said, it is both unexpected, but also it should be expected. Like when a woman is pregnant, 
Man, it is unexpected in the terms of what day it was. I remember with our fourth, we uh, sat down with all the other kids and we all wrote on a board like what day we thought it would be. We said, it's in this general timeline, right? And uh, and so we lay it out there. But then guess what? Like the day that, that Elliot was born, it, it was unexpected but expected. We knew it was coming, but it didn't come like we didn't know the exact time. And so what we get here are two statements concerning, really what I believe concerning judgment, that, that when put together describe Christ's coming in two ways. Paul says it will be sudden and unexpected like a thief in the night. But secondly, it will be sudden and unavoidable like labor pains before the birth of a child. I love what John Stott says about this verse. He says, in the first case, the thief, there will be no warning. And in the second, there will be no escape. I guess what? When it's time for a baby to be born, doctors, they can do things to to stop or something. Guess what? Like, when it's time for the child to come, like, you can't say, no, I want to do over. Or no, can we, I'm busy. Like, you can't do that. But one more thing I want to say about this portion of the text, man, because I, I, I think that often we make this more about us than we do, man, the, I believe the call that Paul actually has for this. Because I believe in all this, he's trying to change our focus. For so many, when we think about the end times and Christ's return, it's all about us, right? Like, I got to get out of here. I believe that's part of like we long, like we all realize because of the brokenness of sin uh, that, that we see in the world around us, in our own lives, like we're ready for him to make all things new. But I believe also what Paul's doing here is, man, he is very evangelism forward in this text. You see, because for the believer, we know and, and have escaped in Christ. But you see, the unbeliever who seeks security elsewhere, they don't know it. They have no hope. And guess what Paul's laying out here? He says, man, they, they, judgment will come upon them. So none of us know the time, but guess what? Like we, we, uh, the, in our lives, like if you're a follower of Jesus, redeemed by the blood, guess what? Man, Christ has already paid for your judgment. And so if the date and the time is not the solution... But just imagine those that are reading this letter, that this church is reading this letter and they're waiting they're saying, okay, we have these questions. Paul's addressed some of the other things. Man, is he going to address this one? And then they get, well, no, no one knows the time. But actually, here's some metaphors for you. Live differently. Live in light of that. They're probably saying, well, what's the solution? Well, Paul gives the answer in what follows in verses 4 through 11. He says this. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation." For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. 
All right, so Paul starts to answer the question regarding the solution for how we prepare for Christ's return by stating that first, the believer or follower of Jesus is not in darkness. So there is no need for us to be taken by surprise like when a thief comes. The the word surprise is actually really key in light of the metaphor that Paul just used regarding the thief. Here's two reasons why a thief commonly surprises First, and I've already said it, they come at night, right? When no one can see them. But second, what Paul says, he says the second way that a thief surprises is not only do they come at night, but when they come, the person in the home is either asleep or they're drunk. You see, the first reason cannot be prepared for. But actually what Paul is saying here, he's saying, hey, if you really want to know how to prepare, this is how you prepare. Because the second, we can prepare for. Paul says that when Christ returns, while it will be unexpected, we can be ready by being awake and alert. And so what does Paul mean by being awake and alert? You see, Paul describes the one who is both unaware and unready as those who either are asleep or if they're awake, it's late at night and so they're probably partying and they're drunk. Add this to the darkness of night and so we get, we, we get three reasons right there why people are unprepared for a burglar. It's nighttime, they can't see them coming. They're asleep or they're wasted. You see, Paul says, as followers of Jesus, he says, you're not of darkness. You are a child of light and not darkness. Therefore, he goes, we should not sleep. And he doesn't mean you should never sleep. Like, don't just be like, okay, I got to stay awake, right? Like, can never go to sleep. Give me a Celsius. Like, let's go. I'm going to just, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be awake. Like, that's not what Paul's after here. What he's talking about, he says, hey, don't, uh, don't sleep the sleep of worldly security. Don't believe the lie of Satan's lullaby. That says it's okay. Just, just sleep. Just go to, you, you just, you don't have to live for Jesus. Like, just go to sleep. I think for so often, I mean, one, like, there, there's those outside churches that aren't aware of it, but I believe that there are many inside the church that they're just walking, they're just sleepwalking. Because they believe this lie that, well, if I just, if I'm a good person or my parents went to church or whatever, like that, I can just, I'm in. Or I'm just waiting until Jesus just takes us out of here. Like, and so what does it matter? And they just sleep through life. But no, Jesus says, man, like the, 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 the thief, right? The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus says in John 10, 10, he says, but I've came to give life and give it abundant. Jesus doesn't say, I came to give you life so you could sleep through it as a follower of Jesus. He says, no, I give you life so you can actually live. He says, so we should not sleep the sleep of worldly security, nor should we be drunk and unprepared. Well, what he's done, Paul's been doing over and over again, is he's been talking about kind of the dichotomy of the tension between darkness and light, sleep, awake, drunkenness and sobriety. And what he's doing is he's seeking to lay before us that, that, it's, uh, that, that whether or not we're ready for Christ's unexpected return really depends on whether or not you're a part of the kingdom of darkness or light. He says, man, actually your concern should not be so much about when he comes back 
or how he comes back, but, but that you are actually to wrestle with, like, man, has my, has my heart been made right by Jesus, or am I walking in darkness? You see, darkness and light are used all throughout the Bible to describe, one, man, the reality that, man, in sin, man, we are in darkness. Like, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And then there's light, which what light is like, man, light is the light that comes from Christ. It's a light that gives life. I mean, even as we sit in the midst of the Advent season, it's a season where we are reminded that light has come. It says it in Isaiah 9. We see this dark and light play out when Isaiah actually describes the coming Messiah. He says this. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then it moves on in the text. It says, for unto us a child is born. That child is Jesus. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, this is the one all the way back, uh, hundreds of years before Jesus ever arrived on the scene. They're saying, hey, we realize we walk in darkness, but guess what? God's promised that one's coming that's going to bring the light. He will be the light of the world. And in being the light of the world, man, when he removes you from darkness and brings you into light, guess what? He says, okay, now live in the light. No longer live in the darkness. And so the question I believe Paul is really presenting for them and for us to wrestle with is, again, not figuring out when, but what kingdom do you belong to? Darkness or light, night or day, has the light of Christ shone upon you? And if so, man, you are to live as a person of light by being, Paul says, awakened sober. Don't, as one writer states, sleep or yawn your way through life, but live in the light because of what Jesus has done. We then see that the product of verse, uh, we see this in the product of verse 8. Which Paul says, he says, look, man, as God's people, like you have nothing to fear. He says, you haven't been destined for wrath in verse 9. Actually, what's going to happen is you're going to obtain salvation. I believe what he's doing there is he's, because I believe that in the gospel, like it saves you now. It saved you from the, the, the penalty of your sin. It, 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 it saved like you were saved now in this moment. But man, one day you will obtain the fullness of what that looks like. Sin and death will be no more. You'll never struggle again. You see, what this marks us with is we are to be, because of this, because we've obtained this salvation through Christ, we are to live lives that are marked by putting on, man, these attributes of what it means to follow Jesus. And then secondly, we are to live out Paul says, he says, man, put on faith, hope, and love, which actually I love because he began this letter by talking about the faith, hope, and love that comes because of the gospel. You see, we are not destined for wrath. We, we don't have to worry about the wrath that's to come because guess what? We do not receive the wrath that we deserve because Jesus took the wrath we deserve for our sin upon the cross. Therefore, we are not destined 
for the wrath of God that will come in the end, which will be an eternal wrath for the sin and rebellion of those who do not submit their life to the Lordship of Christ and receive forgiveness through His finished work. Guess what? Jesus is the only avenue by which we escape wrath. For He is the true Passover Lamb that took the wrath of God for us and covers us by His blood. You see, it's not simply that we escape wrath. Paul shares, he says, you obtain salvation through Christ so that whether, he says, whether you're awake or asleep, you live in Him. Look at what Paul's doing here. This, again, it's not escapism. What Paul is saying is that as followers of Jesus, we might endure hardship, we might endure persecution, even death, but whether we're awake or asleep, we not only have hope, we live in Christ because the wrath to come cannot touch us. You see, the ultimate thing we sought to escape, death and wrath, has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And so if you're asleep, guess what? You're with God. And if you're living like today, if you're alive in Christ, you don't have to worry about when He'll return. You don't have to seek to bide your time until you escape from this place. Rather, you can actually live with Him today. The hope of glory, Christ in you. The Spirit of God, every believer, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And it's not some kind of janky, wonky thing that we should be nervous about and scared of. It's it's the third person of the Trinity. Again, the reality of a union with Christ today is on display here in this text. And I believe, again, it brings about three things. The same three things we talked about already. Hope. Because you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to be surprised by or to run from. Because the debt's been paid. Motivation, you have nothing to lose. Therefore, live in Him. And encouragement. Let our focus, Paul even ends in verse 11. He says, let our focus be to encourage and build one another up in ways that proclaim the eternal hope that we have in Christ. We love one another, to love one another well is to be present in hope. To encourage one another along. Paul says, hey, you're already doing this. But what he means there is like, don't stop. It's progressive. It continues on. So in closing, how do we do this? Well, to the believer, how do we encourage one another as believers? Well, we look and we, when we start to seek escape, man, run to encouragement. Not flattery. Run to encouragement. That we might return set our gaze upon Jesus again. That we would live in the now while longing for the future. That we would, uh, we need to encourage one another when we see one another seeking to escape by the way of comfort. And I don't know about you, but man, the holiday season is a really, really easy way to seek escapism. Through the gifts, the time together, the... The Christmas mood. Like, I'm not saying those are bad things, but man, we use them as an avenue just to escape and numb. You see, we have so much to live for. And as a day for the unbeliever, guess what? Like, like, as a follower of Jesus, you are called to proclaim the hope of Christ in word and deed through the proclamation of the gospel and love towards others. That also proclaims the reality that apart from Christ, guess what? Wrath will come and therefore today is the day they are to repent and turn to the forgiveness that comes through Christ who took our wrath upon himself. To move from darkness to light. 
Because one day, Jesus will return. It'll be unexpected, but also, man, you can't escape it. See, one of my concerns, especially in terms of eschatology, is that so many in the church spend so much time trying to figure out when Christ is coming back by looking at charts, graphs, and blood moons that it results in poor evangelism in two primary ways. First, we're so concerned with getting out, we never love people well or enough along the way to share the love of Jesus with them. But secondly, because all that is talked about is the return of Christ. At some point in the future, non-believers don't take it seriously today because we don't live seriously today. And therefore, we push the deep matters of faith off to the future. You see, Paul actually talks about something very similar in Second Timothy chapter 4. And so I'm just going to close out with this. You see, in talking about being ready, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this. And again, this isn't just for those that preach the word. I believe this is for every follower of Jesus. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. It doesn't matter the time. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. That's what we're called to. Paul, in talking about, man, what does it look like? When is it going to happen? He says, no, 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 no. Your focus is, man, realizing, man, you're in, you're, you're a part of the kingdom of life, so you have nothing to worry about. Therefore, go, do the work of an evangelist. Proclaim the truth of the gospel, the hope of the good news of Jesus. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, fulfill your ministry. This is our calling. This is our encouragement. May this be our prayer. And therefore, may we be ready and go. So this is what I want to do. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. Because we've got uh, kids coming in in just a moment to sing some Christmas carols, uh, we're going to do communion a little different today. Uh, And so what I'm going to do is I am going to uh, kind of lead us in what that's going to look like. Uh, And then y'all are just going to come forward down the middle. Uh, If you're a follower of Jesus, we want to invite you. Actually, those that are going to be handing out the elements, if y'all want to go ahead and come forward now. Uh, and they'll hand out the elements. If you're a follower of Jesus, then we want to invite you to come and share uh, in the reality that Jesus died and rose again and that he is our great hope. Uh, that he, that, that by his love, we are given life. Uh, and so we want you to share in that with us today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we ask that you abstain, not to cast you aside, but to say, hey, we would like to talk to you about what this really means. We want you to know the hope and have an understanding of the gospel. Uh, and so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the scripture. And then I'm going to pray. When I'm done praying, y'all can come forward. Uh, Y'all are just going to grab the elements and then you'll take them together. So if you want to take them uh, as a family, as an individual, as a couple, uh, do that. And uh, as people make their way through, then the the team's going to start singing. Um, And so we'll sing together uh, and then the kids will come in. But again, as we respond... I want you to think about and, and, and wrestle and, and, and just, man, realize the reality of, man, you know, one, are you in darkness or in light? 
in an ultimate sense. Uh, and then in light of that, are you living? Are you so worried about when that you're not living today? May texts like this give us hope and motivation and encouragement in ways that lead us to live radical lives for the kingdom of God. That we would not sleep our way through life. But that we would proclaim to people the reality of the one who came and will come again. So Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you came and that you are returning. And that when you return, we will be with you and that you will make all things new. And although we don't know the details of everything that's going to happen and what that's going to look like and when it's going to happen, God, we know that you are returning and our hope is set upon that. And so we rejoice today in that reality. And Lord, may uh, we not just sit back and coast along and sleep through life, but rather may this motivate us to live lives marked by your love, that love others well, and that we would encourage one another along the way. In Jesus' name, amen.